Hello everyone, welcome to Thai Finance. Today we have a fascinating episode. We're going to talk about Russia. Russia has a vast history. That's why we're going to begin with that, to give you a context. We're going to take a deep dive on how the Russians see the world today and how they perceive everything and how economically and financially will position themselves to win over influence in this new world order. We will take a look on how de-dollarization and this alliance with China is going to position themselves in a privileged spot to influence international institutions and to have power over Eastern countries. So if you think this is interesting, you should definitely watch this video. So let's begin with some history about Russia. Catherine the Great finished developing many of the policies of Peter the Great and laid the groundwork for imperial expansion in the 19th century. At the beginning of the 19th century, Russia's population, resources, international diplomacy and military forces made it one of the most powerful states in the world. Let's take into account two important facts. The Russian-Turkish War of 1768 and 1774 was a decisive conflict that established de facto Russian control over southern Ukraine. It was then dominated by the Ottoman Empire through its puppet states, the Crimean Khanate. Russia acquired a direct connection to the Black Sea through Crimea, of course, while Crimea became an independent state from the Ottomans in 1783. Then Catherine annexed the Crimea. These facts are super important to understand the context of today. So we can see here this Turkish-Russian war where on the left side we can see those distinctive uniforms of the Turkish and on the right side uh, we can see the Russians fighting for it. Here is another engraving of the treaty that closed this deal, the Kuchuk-Kainarji Treaty. Let's give you some more history. Catherine's rule is often linked to a golden age in her mandate in which Russia opened up to progress and the philosophical currents of the illustration or the enlightenment uh, of course, which had a profound impact on Russian culture. Basically, the Crimea was uh, a very important sport, spot where this developed. And this was all to catch up and compete with the rest of the continental powers from St. Petersburg. Uh, St. Petersburg is basically where Catherine lived most of the time. So the Dutch Empire uh, was present at the moment in th that context. It was the, the world reserve currency and the most powerful nation state. It also promoted the development of the national artists themselves and sowed the seeds of an urgent reform in education. This is Catherine the Great. 
as you can see, it tries to impose uh, something, right? It's uh, their sumptuous clothing. Um, there's she's basically mimicking the kings and queens of that context in Euro of Europe. So they this is some kind of like statement, right? Of Russia now imposing their own worldview. Let's talk about a very interesting uh, person in in the history of Russia, which is Alexander Gorchakov. Uh, he was basically a Russian diplomat and a statesman from the Gorchakov family at time of the great liberal reforms of the second half of the 19th century. He was basically like the Henry Kissinger of our times or basically those thinkers that leave something meaningful in the foreign policy. He was the mo one of the most influential and respected diplomats of the mid-19th century. In July of 1863, Gorchakov was appointed Chancellor of the Russian Empire. In 1867, concluded the sale of Alaska, just to give you some context as well. Process which had, has begun as early as 1854 during the Crimean War. In October of 1853, the Ottomans declared war with Russia. France and Britain offered support against Russia. And while defending the rights of Christian minorities, of course, this Crimean War symbolizes an inflection point for the Russian Empire. The war weakened the Imperial Russian army, drained the treasury, and deteriorated Russia's influence in Europe. This was basically the decay of that golden era. And the aftermath of the war forced Russia elites to identify the empire's decay and to recognize the need for fundamental reforms. This is Alexander Gorchakov. As you can see, he's basically a thinker and a great strategist that his ideas were brilliant of how Russia is going to consolidate the foreign policy of Russia. Gorchakov, in a document presented to Alexander II, wrote the principles of Russian foreign policy. And this is very important that we go through them because we're going to compare them now of what Putin uh, is doing with Medvedev. So let's look at this. Our political activity should pursue a double goal. In the first place, avoid at all costs to participate in any type of external conflict that could subtract part of the resources that are destined to internal development tasks. And I want to make this clear. Subtract part of the resources. He's talking about the natural resources that are destined to internal development tasks. He's basically implying that our natural resources are basically the most important things and the most important assets to uh, reach the goals of Russia. In second place, spare no effort to avoid territorial changes in Europe, as well as variations in the balance of forces and influences that could harm our interests and our political vision position. Basically, the balance of power in Europe Uh, of course, if it changed, it changed completely the game. At that moment, Great Britain was basically the wheel of the balance of power. If one of the territories like in Spain or France 
or any of them was getting stronger, basically Great Britain sh uh, balanced the power of those countries. Fulfilling both conditions, it is hoped that Russia, by recovering from losses, suffered and consolidating resources, will regain its role, position, prestige, influence and the destiny of its own among the great powers. Russia will be able to achieve this position as long as it fosters internal resources which today constitute the only real force of the political power of the states. Natural resources are basically currency and Russia has a vast territory. They're full of wealth. Great territory comes great responsibility, wealth, and they should take care of their natural resources because they are basically wealthy just because they have a vast territory. And they are, they cannot, they need to be taken into account because these resources are just important, form part of our everyday life. Now let's compare it with what Medvedev approved along with the legacy of Yevgeny Primakov, a new concept of Russian foreign policy. And basically I want to say that uh, Primakov or Primakov it's now the thinker of our times right now. Uh, he was very close to Putin and he's one of the most important thinkers and the shapers of the new Russian foreign policy, which is not as new. Uh, Russian foreign policy is uh, hasn't changed any, uh, not so much, but here is the resume document of what they think. I will go through it fast. So they want national security and territorial integrity along with sovereignty. They want to enhance the quality of life, push human rights, uh, have a much better rule of law and democratic institutions. Of course, this is written. It's a long, long-term strategy. But of course, some of these things are just a facade to go through uh, the modern world. World Amplify the sphere of influence in modern world through collective discussions of international problems. So the international institutions are basically very important for them and this is giving them basically power, political, economic, intellectual and spiritual expansion, good neighborhood policy. This is eliminate the sources of tensions with border states and find common interest with other states according to national interest to eliminate political volatility. Bilateralism, multilateralism association to reach common goals and have a completely independent foreign policy. They perceive the world as something multilateral. They don't want to be unilateral or they don't want to be a superpower as the United States right now. They conceive the world as among many powerful players like the European Union, um, United States, um, Mercosur, and some other groups of power that are basically going along with China, of course, taking into account. Promote and disseminate in foreign states the Russian language and the culture of the peoples of Russia. Reach state democracy committed to the market economy. And basically, this was signed by Medvedev in 2008 and, Russia, and Putin 
actually added some important points, which is the technological modernization and financial and economic challenges will become increasingly evident as negative trends build up in the world economy. Unsolved structural problems and lingering economic depression in the leading countries of the West affect global development in a negative way. He's, he's not stupid. Every, of course, the West, the dollar, the power of the United States is affecting countries in a negative way. So this is a picture of Putin behind Medvedev. Uh, and basically, this is very clear how their relation is like that. He's very basically like a coach to him. Um, they both work together. They respect each other. Medvedev worked for Gazprom and these um, state-owned huge companies that represent a lot of income for the state. Here's Evgeny Primakov, one of the brilliant strategist thinkers and shapers of the foreign policy of Russia. He's, and he basically is very, in, he was very influential at the moment with Putin and previous leaders shaping the foreign policy. So how Russia behaves in the international arena. They're rational, calculating, pragmatic nationalist with a patriotic rhetoric. The past, the history of Russia is super important to communicate to the world. Uh, I said that the world must be multipolar. Unipolarity brings instability. They don't hide that. They don't like the U.S. There's an anti-Western mm, sentiment among them. Russia is not practicing isolationism. Basically, isolationism is perceived in this channel like you can... Uh, depend completely on your own, like your own natural resources, your own industry, and you don't need other countries. In this case, it's not like that. So they need to protect its natural resources to protect its national interest. Commodities, for example, energetics and raw material are currency for them. Uh, if they deplete those natural resources, they're in trouble. But as long as they have this vast territory that they can exploit the natural resources, <clears throat> they're good to go. Of course, this is the common in the national interest comes through state-owned companies like Gazprom, Rosnef, Transnef, or corporations like Lukoil. Uh, Russia assures basically the government income by giving these natural resources away, and that's very powerful. That's a very powerful tool. Natural resources are wealth. Vast land and commodities behave like currencies. They fluctuate in price, but they never go to zero. It doesn't matter if the rubble goes depreciates. As long as they have commodities, they have money. They're a rich country. Russia recognizes itself as one of the largest multilateral powerful entities and national interests go beyond its own borders. Russia, remember, it's always expanding. This is in their veins. This is in their blood. From Alexander II to Vladimir Putin, they are expanding. It has explicit and dominant aspirations to expand. We can see the case of Crimea, Syria, Ukraine, Iran, and Libya. Uh, 
it used to be an imper imperial player uh, and failed to sustain its own weight. The Berlin Wall fell. And before that, of course, it was when the imperial Russia couldn't sustain its own weight, as I previously explained, right? Of course, it will not accept U.S. intervention in post-Soviet territories, Central Asia, Caucasus, and Europe. He's a member of the U.N. Security Council. Basically, there is where the most powerful countries take all the decisions about interventions, rescues, or anything else. It's France, Great Britain, Russia, China, the United States, and not, you know, they have the veto of power. And, of course, as well, the Central European Initiative, they say, it's a forum of regional cooperation in Central and Eastern Europe, are key elements for Russian expansionist ends. They have to be there and they have to be part of the discussions of diplomacy. Of course, human rights and freedom of expressions are controversial as well. It comes with the territory. It's the Russia's country profile. The complexity of understanding Russia begins in its size. It goes from Europe. Uh, it Basically, it's around, well, it touches a little bit of the Middle East and it goes to Asia. It's a huge territory. It has nine different standard time zones. It's, it's, it's a lot. There are about 120 ethnic groups in Russia who speak different languages. Roughly 80% of Russians trace their ancestry to the Slavs who settled in the country 1,500 years ago. Other major groups include Tatars who came with the Mongol invaders and Ukrainians. So it's, it's a huge territory with huge differences even inside. The internal conflicts are very complex as well and faces a demographic crisis to be influential and highly relevant to impose a sphere of sustainable influence. Uh, China has a lot of people living in that country and demographics are important because when you have healthy demographics, you have a workforce to confront and create wealth. Russia has this problem. They have a lot of inhabitants, but not enough to be as fair, to impose a sphere of influence and sustainably. So natural resources, a driven economy with talented people. There are engineers. You have many talented people. The, the education is good. It's a good, basically, Soviet inheritance, uh, but a controversial rule of law. And the second part of the country profile, it's like it's an industrial country with an underdeveloped, heterogeneous territory and infrastructure. If you go to St. Petersburg or to Russia, or to Moscow, I'm sorry, uh, basically those... It, you you can feel that you're in, even in Europe. Uh, there's lots of infrastructure. Everything works perfectly well. Huge uh, subway, uh, beautiful architecture. But once you go outside those territories, you are uh, in a developing country with rooms for improvement, of course, for structural social reforms. And as, as I said, outside Moscow and St. Petersburg. Old institutions and coercive actions of the past could be an impediment to modernization. 
next decades could be decisive for reshaping Russian institutions and recover that imperial status. Sentiment for nationalism and superpower nostalgia are great incentives to pursue modernity. But conservative elites, inequality, poverty, unemployment and corruption could be as well an impediment. Of course, ceasing U.S. mistakes to be more powerful is key. U.S. decline is destabilizing influence in Middle East and China, India, and Russia are ceasing tactical intervention opportunities in the region. Every time the U.S. fails, Russia has an opportunity to go there and be in the spotlight. So as long as they cease the U.S. mistakes, which they are a lot, the, those huge wars that go to nowhere, Russia is basically taking a piece of it. Um, I want to go through now how the Russians see the world. Uh, internally, everybody shares the same view. I don't think so. Let's see the three paradigms or ideals that are inside Russia's uh, diplomats or people of influence. The first one is the Europeanism, leveraged by businessmen and wealthy individuals, mainly from Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, these billionaires, they, they like to be in Europe. They, they perceive as Europe as, as something desirable. And some others, of course, don't. Everybody's different. They're huge. There are many, many ideas. Uh, they support democracy, globalization, and the support of Western values and the world vision like human rights, cooperation, and many other things like, like a European Union. Of course, there's another view that is to rise as a powerful Slavic Union, to be, in, to be coordinated with Ukraine, Belarus, and ex-Soviet nations. But here, nationalism, a new sovereign status, distinctive national identity... And the independence of those states, it's, it's an impediment for, to be controlled by Russia. There are already states, for example, Ukraine has the, their own culture. And basically, it's not so easy just to be like in cooperation with those countries. And the last one is the Eurasianism. It's the rise as a mighty Eurasian power. Uh, but there's a huge empty space outside Moscow and St. Petersburg. If you go to the bear, to the Asian side of Russia, it's uh, empty space and an underdeveloped inter Eastern Russia. And some of them, they perceive that this painful Ru Russo-Chinese alliance, that it's not always smooth. And you will see why. And there is also this anti-Western sentiment uh, because it's recognized as this Stalinist past that obstructs Russia towards a democracy. Uh, the, these countries like China and Russia, they, they had in their history, you don't see any slight hint of democracy, right? They recognize Stalin uh, as an anti-Western figure and it's not hated inside the, the country. Uh, you cannot love him, love him, but also you cannot hate him. Uh, Stalinist past is also a foothold to understand each other with the communist Russia. And there is a rising hostility framework 
there there are lots of inter intervention like proxy wars in western conflicts that increase tensions among soviet army versus this enlarged nato there's a secular approach approach to muslim population internally um they accept other religions because they are orthodox and it's a secular country and of course uh, he, they are promoting destabilization of the middle east it's a kind of cold war with the us well let's talk about the crimea and the ukraine conflict that it begin it began with catherine the great do you remember so in 1954 Crimean Russia SSR was transferred to the Ukraine SSR. This was with the fall of the Berlin Wall with Nikita Khrushchev. So in 1991, Crimea had independence and became autonomous. In 2010, Viktor Yunakovych refused to sign a treaty with the EU, the EU uh, at the last minute. In 2013, there was a political upheaval and uh, there was an agreement of a multi-million bailout with Russia and they started to sign a referendum and the conflict spread to Ukraine and there were lots of pro protests that erupted in ethnically Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine. So the US, the UK, the EU and the NATO together imposed sanctions on Russia they are breaking their back. Basically, these are very tough sanctions. So recently, Ukraine urged Western allies to punish Moscow with new sanctions, including kicking Russia out of the global SWIFT payment system to deter the Kremlin from advance more with military force against Ukraine. So these are very serious sanctions. Then Russia basically is depleting their natural resources in order to keep going and be competitive. So it's the Sino-Russian relations. We have this oil and gas Sino-Russian deal, which was huge. It's a pipeline, the largest deal of the West, estimated at $400 billion. Basically, Russia, Angola, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Iraq, and Iran are the main sources of oil for China. And there's a 2,100-kilometer pipeline from Lake Baikal to Chinese borders. These uh, Western powers, the U.S., the EU, and NATO, isolated Russia with strong sanctions because of the Crimea. So in economics is the base of power statistics. Russia is getting heavily dependent on China in the export of oil, gas, and raw materials. Between 2010 and 2019, Russia increased exports of oil to 5 to 26%, and Russia and Saudi Arabia are key sources of oil. It represents 15% of total China's oil import. And China, of course, is diversified. He's the king of in, in this play. But China has proved reliable for Russia when it needs during hard times, like in 2008 in the crisis and 2016 and on 2024 they expect to double these exports so where where can we see the sino-russian symbiosis it's like how they cooperate with each other and get something in return in this case the first one is technology 
Technology is key for Russia to be a player in the new world order. And China is there to give them and to provide all the technological hardware. And Russia is key for security in the region. They, the sale of weapons, the military know-how, all the expertise, the naval and aviation military know-how, will it's getting transferred to, to China and the region. And of course, cyber security. Cyber attacks tend to be more profitable than any other war. And Russia is getting very good at it. As you can, as you can remember in the meddling of, mm. of elections in the West, uh, they have been very present there. And the cyber security, the cyber attacks will be the wars of tomorrow. So the US China, uh, confrontations like the trade war or the conflict in Taiwan enhance Russia's fear of influence. They're there, they're present. And every time they're seizing these uh, interventions to be in the spotlight. So both leaders as well uh, change the constitution and there's no signs of Western concept of democracy in present and in their history. So both leaders meet several times a year and it seems to be a great relation and a sustainable partnership. So if economic is central for China's Marx-inspired worldview, then it's also central for how China handles Sino-Russian relations. This is, do you remember that I talked about Stalin? Well, this is a foothold. Uh, there is a common worldview, a Marx-inspired worldview. Lenin, Marx. Uh, so it's something, in, it's a common ground. And China recognizes itself as a communist party. Only one party, let's not forget that only one party rules the vast land of over 1.4 billion people and it calls itself the Chinese Communist Party. So Russia follows the same path. And here I want you to see um, the allocated exchange reserves by currency in 2019 expressed in percentage. So what is this? It's currencies that a country holds in its foreign exchange reserve. Uh, and what are their uses? They're they, they used for international payments and for their own support of the currency. Okay, so basically country holds foreign uh, reserves and when they want to support their own currency, they just sell uh, US dollars in order to support the local currency. So the total value of all currencies held in foreign exchange reserves, it's 11 trillion. And here we can see that there's a huge dominance of the US dollar. Basically, 61% of all these transactions or reserves are, are US dollars. The next is the euro. Then is the yen, the sterling, the Canadian dollar, Australia. And then there is the Chinese renminbi and the others. So... They have to strategize to basically take away the dominance of the U.S. dollars and through euro and through the Chinese renminbi basically change the game of change the rules of the game. So what is the de-dollarization? Iran is one of the most important driving forces in the de-dollarization movement after China and Russia. So Tehran is trading with Turkey and important U.S. allies, South Korea, among others, in euros and in their own currencies. The dollar is already at risk 
So they're basically mitigating the risk while diversifying in other currencies. There is an intense cooperation between Russia and China, as I explained in my other videos of de-dollarization, and not only in the energy business, but also in gold-possessing strategies with the aim of sidestepping the dollar. So basically all these countries, they're hoarding gold in their balances in order to sidestep the U.S. dollar. And they're doing it strong. They're buying heavily every month. So China's long-term vision is to have enough footholds, oil, infrastructure, gold, strong finances, banks, institutions to anchor their own currency. And if that happens, other countries will have to maintain reserves of the yuan instead of the current reserve currencies. So Russia and other large exporters <clears throat> will eventually take market share from the Saudis in the Chinese market, forcing Saudi Arabia to invoice oil in other currency. Because as I explained in my other video, Saudi Arabia, it's basically sustaining all this petrodollar system. So dismantling the dollar has to begin with the euro and pro progressively shift to the renminbi. So Russia is preparing for the commodity supercycle. The EU is Russia's first trade partner. 36.5% of Russia's imports came from the EU and 37.9% of its exports went to the EU. Total trading goods between the European Union and Russia in 2020 amounted to 174 billion. So the EU's imports, they're equal to 95 billions of dollars, dominated by fuel and mining products, especially petroleum. And then you can see some commodities um, like agriculture and raw materials, chemicals, uh, iron and steel. These are just <clears throat> products essentials for everyday life. And since 2012, when Russia's joined the World Trade Organization, the European Union and Russia, trade relations have also been framed by the WTO, multilateral rules that are very, very strict. And of course, a commodity super cycle is coming. As I mentioned in my other video, I please watch it so you can be in context. Over the long term, Russia will be very powerful in terms of income, either we like it or not. We, we are at the beginning of a commodity super cycle and Russia has a vast territory, so it will increase its income. And commodities have been in a bear market for decades. So fiscal and monetary stimulus during the pandemic will provide a major sh shift into assets and commodities. Nobody on the institutional side is invested into commodities at the moment but they will be. And gold and commodities are more sensitive to inflation, resulting in an increased revenue for Russia. The only thing I see not clearly is how Russia will be powerful into uh, financial. For that, you, you need big banks and you need that those banks influence the currencies. In this case, he has to be close to China. It depends on China. 
So now we can see the ratio of commodities of the S&P 500 basically representing a basket of commodities and how they will behave into price, let's say. So you can see these are big cycles. They just go up, then they go down, they go up again, and they go down. It's just a super cycle. And when the the price of commodities are low, basically Russia is in a difficult position. And when commodity price rises, basically it's a leveraged income for them. Not a leveraged one, but it's it's just an increase of income immediately. Of course, with high levels of debt, deficit spending, and the never-ending cur- currency debasement, there has never been a clear sign that the cycle has shifted and a global invasion Inflation is about to begin, and here is the moment for Russia. Russia will have a heavy income in the coming decades, and this will play a significant role for them and to achieve some goals. So, Russia, it's very complex to explain. I hope I I basically give you some ideas of what they are thinking, because today... The world will be multipolar and we have to see how other countries are thinking about the world order, how they perceive the world. And these, these countries, they will rise like rockets, like when Russia was in the, the Soviet Union, basically was in the 70s. And this is because they have commodities, they're rich themselves. So, Let's wait to see how it's developed. But this is a long-term strategy. This is like talking about 20 to 30 years. And, well, I hope I give you like a big picture of what's going on. Please subscribe to the channel. Like all everything. This was a super super time-consuming presentation. And I hope you really like it. Please share it with the people that you like. With your friends, with your contact. Hit the thumbs up. Click the subscribe button, the little bell, and please share it. This is just uh, the basically the YouTube algorithm doesn't do a lot of job um, promoting this channel. And I think if you like it, just please share it. Thank you very much.